Welcome to a brand new edition of Problematic Women. I'm Lauren Evans and hosting with me today is Virginia Allen. Welcome, Virginia. Thank you so much for having me back, Lauren. Up on today's Problematic Women, we'll be talking about deepfakes, the technology that enables you to transpose one person's face over another's, making it seem like that person is doing or saying something that they are not, and how it's becoming a bigger problem, particularly for women. We'll address Teen Vogue's claim that Gen Z is the most progressive and least party-focused generation. Demi Lovato apologizes for taking a celebrity birthright trip to Israel. And Ellen DeGeneres' special message about George W. Bush. Plus, you won't want to miss our interview with progressive feminist Natasha Chart on why she spoke at the Heritage Foundation yesterday. Each week on Problematic Women, we sort through the news to find stories that are of particular interest to conservative-leaning or problematic women, those whose views and opinions are often excluded by those on the so-called feminist left. If you are a problematic woman or just someone who supports strong, independent women, please consider supporting us by leaving a review or rating on iTunes and encouraging others to subscribe. It really does make a difference. All right, let's go ahead and get started. Our first topic is deepfakes. The technology to transpose one person's face over another's, making it seem like the person is doing or saying something that they are not. Like this clip right here. We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things. That might sound like former President Obama. And if you saw the video, it even looks like him, too. But in actuality, that is actor Jordan Peele's impression of him. Later, the video shows a side-by-side comparison of Peele and the deepfake version of President Obama. As Peele's lips move, deepfake Obama's lips mirrors in response. There is still something a little unnatural about the former president's mannerisms, but is not hard to imagine with a little advances in technology how these fakes could be extremely difficult to detect. However, the cybersecurity company DeepTrace is trying to do just that. Reported in a recent CNN article, DeepTrace found that there are over 14,000 deepfake videos online. 96% of those videos were some form of porn. National security or threats to elections are normally the worries discussed first in regards to the deepfakes, but the impact on private citizens should be just as concerning. DeepTrace found several businesses that offer to do deepfake videos, some costing as little as $3 per video. We've already heard a lot about things like revenge porn. How do you think the presence of deep fakes plays into that discussion? The issue of of deep fakes and revenge porn, they are intricately connected. For our listeners that maybe aren't familiar with that term revenge porn, essentially that means that a boyfriend or a girlfriend who has pictures or videos uh, of their ex can sell those or post them on the internet um, usually those are um, images, maybe they're nude images or just images where someone's scantily clothed. So now if you think about uh, revenge porn in light of deep fakes, you could take someone's face and post it on another body uh, and have them you know, be doing something or saying something that they never did or said, but that is quite explicit. Yeah, imagine if someone used a deep fake. It's not just video. It can be audio as well to call your boss and and curse out your boss. There's no explaining to your boss that wasn't me because it sounded exactly like you. Yeah, and it's something that not a lot of people, I feel like at this point, are super familiar with 
what deepfakes is. I was even interested as as we were typing out in in a Word doc about deepfakes. It still underlines it in red. It doesn't recognize that it's a word yet. So it's something that's very new. We're still being familiarized with it as a society, but increasingly it's becoming a major issue. And uh, I think in the coming years, we're only going to see that increase. Yeah, it's, it's a scary fact to wrap your mind around. What One day, what we see and what we hear, we can't validate because we don't know if it's actually real. Yeah. So, Lauren, why do you think that deepfakes are just becoming such a problem now? It's really where we're at with technology. So if anyone's ever used like Photoshop or Microsoft Paint, they'll know how it's really easy to take one person and make them look totally different. So what AI is able to do, it's able to automate this process. And and the more that the computer does it and, and the better it gets at it, right? So we're both with the software able to do this more easily. And then also with the hardware back in the day, you know, 20, 30 years ago, there were only a couple computers in the whole world that could handle AI and this kind of thing. And now... You know, your phone is such a great computer in your pocket. So kind of these two things converging with one another makes it that anybody can find this on the Internet and run it on as long as they have a halfway decent computer. You think about the apps that we have on our phones. And, you know, just a month ago, everyone was sending around and posting pictures of people looking old. And, you know, it was just super easy. You just download the app and you could put in anyone's photo and it would age you by like 40 years. So that's essentially the kind of the type of technology that we're talking about, right? Yeah, very similar. Um, What it does is it kind of picks focal points on your face and it'll track it. um, And then it'll superimpose other images on top of your face. So kind of think when you use, you know, the Snapchat filter of the dog where the tongue comes out, it's similar to that, but it's pasting another person's face on your face. So in this postmodern world that we live in, where truth is constantly being questioned, what should people do knowing that even when you know they see something, it might not be accurate? Wow. I don't even know where to start with this question. I think it, it just shows that the important things in our world don't change with technology. It's your friends, it's your family, and it's your faith. And if you're confident in these three things, there's no such thing as deep fakes. Um, but in terms of what we, the media that we consume and, and things like Facebook and, and YouTube and Twitter and, and what this means for that, I, again, like I, I can't even wrap my head around this completely. We are so media driven, right? And, and so what do you, how do you even process that what you're seeing looks real and sounds real and isn't real? I don't think I have the answer to that, Virginia. Yeah, definitely. So much of it is, like you say, it's, it's, trusting the character of of the people that are in our lives that we know and and love and also trusting that they're telling the truth if they're saying no that's not me or I didn't say that or I didn't do that Uh, but yeah big question certainly confusing and and a bit scary to think about and so Virginia what do you think is the solution and and whose job should it be to kind of regulate these deepfakes I feel like that question is even harder than the previous question but yeah honestly I think it's everyone's job Of course, the government needs to play a role, but it's also really up to private citizens. It's up to nonprofits, private corporations that the companies that have this technology, that are technology platforms, need to be policing their sites, uh, need to be protecting the technology. Um, And, you know, like we talked about, we need to be kind of holding each other accountable uh, and having open and, and honest and real conversations 
you know, and there's a little bit of a balance because obviously we want people to be aware of this technology uh, so that, you know, if if the these videos do start coming out, people can kind of sort through, okay, well, it's possible that that's a deep fake. But then again, that's also dangerous because the more and more people know about it, the more and more people are going to try and create these videos. So it's it's a tricky, tricky scenario, maybe without a, a super simple or obvious option. Yeah, we've spent a lot of time researching this topic, and I don't think I came across one article that had a solution. Everybody was like, this is a problem. And part of the problem is that we just don't know what to do. And one of the biggest problems with Facebook and YouTube, they're really trying to combat this, but there is a layer of satire that can be used with deepfakes. So they can't just ban all deepfakes. And and as Virginia, like you mentioned at the top, as these are getting better and better, they're going to be even harder and harder to even detect and take down. I was speaking with a heritage policy analyst, Klon Kitchen, and he was telling me about one private solution that's actually kind of scary where celebrities hire basically people to track them all the time and so they can verify where they are and what they're doing, which is such a major privacy concern. But to a celebrity who's having issues with, you know, pornographic deepfakes or um, deepfakes that are making them do anything else nefarious, their privacy is worth someone saying like, oh, no, that wasn't her because at 8 p.m. on Tuesday, November 17th, she was, you know, in Spain and not in the United States where this was filmed. So even some of the free market solutions really aren't great solutions. No, they're not. I mean, that's such a sad commentary, I think, on kind of the state of society that someone would literally have to hire kind of a full time person to follow them around just to confirm that they are where they say that they were. Um, it, yeah, obviously we have we have not figured this one out yet, but we will certainly keep you all posted as as new developments come out and more research and and this uh, scenario of deep sake. And in the meantime, the Heritage Foundation did a really great event not too long ago. I would recommend Marco Rubio was involved. It's online at heritage.org. It's called Deepfakes, a looming challenge for privacy, democracy, and national security. Heritage events are also uh, its own podcast. So if you look on Apple Podcasts for that, and we'll also include it down in the show notes if you want to check that out as well. Yeah, I definitely encourage you to listen to that. I had the privilege of sitting in on that lecture, and I remember just being kind of mind blown. Of, you know, that was my first time learning about deepfakes, and it's pretty amazing to hear about it uh, and hear about it from the perspective of people that are really working on this issue. All right, so we are going to transition and talk for a second about one of our favorite subjects on this show, and that is Gen Zers. So Teen Vogue recently published an article explaining how Generation Z, that is anyone born after 1996, is the most liberal and least partisan of the current generations. Now, that's a bit contradictory, but let's go ahead and go into more of the article. The article examines research by the Pew Research Center and shows that 70% of Generation Z believes that the government should do more to solve problems. 35% say that they personally know someone who prefers uh, a gender-neutral pronoun, and only 14% say that they believe that the U.S. is better than any other country in the world. The article also states that Generation Z tends to have less party loyalty than other generations before them. Director of Circle, 
Kai Kawashima Ginsburg concludes because this generation has primarily seen party polarization without the occasional bipartisan partnership most other generations have seen, their view of parties is more negative. She said someone in Generation Z may have seen a Supreme Court nominee get beaten down by an opposing party or some bills not even making it to the floor. And it's really hard to put your trust in that system. It's easier in a way to dismiss everything surrounding a system that you see as dysfunctional. And political parties are part of that system. So, Lauren, when you read this article, you know, kind of what what were your first thoughts? Do you think that Generation Z is, in fact, the most progressive generation that we have seen? Or do you think it's really just that they're the youngest generation, so they're going to be the most progressive? Because traditionally, when you're a young person, you tend to lean left. Yeah, they always say if you're not a liberal when you're young, you don't have a heart. And if you're not a conservative when you're old, you don't have a brain. But... I don't know. I, I think it's it's difficult because on one hand, I do think part of this is just young people are kind of high in the sky, idealists. Um, they, they haven't really experienced what life is. Um, and I think that's a really kind of indicative of what liberal politi- policies really kind of are. Um, but on the other hand, this generation has been surrounded by 24-hour news cycles, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat stories of just kind of liberal and leftist propaganda. You know, we, we've talked about, I can't remember what, if it was Teen Vogue uh, but or Teen, or Teen Cosmo, but it was one of those teen magazines did a abortion story on Snapchat. So yeah, so I, I don't think there's anything that makes this generation inherently liberal, but my concern is that they won't grow out of it because of kind of the system that they've been raised in. Yeah, my my hope is that what we'll see is kind of what you often see a a bit with with any situation is that there is this seesaw effect and you know we're seeing Gen Zers go so far to the left and be so progressive and I think there's a chance that at some point that seesaw will kind of tip back to the other side and they'll kind of say wait a second this is this is a little further than makes sense than we thought we were going than is practical and so you know we'll see it's it's hard to obviously know for sure but I was interested by the fact that this article Uh, did address the fact that so many other generations have been a part of seeing parties come together in unity and that really all Generation Z has been exposed to is this constant conflict and constant warring of parties that has created this mistrust between political parties. So, Lauren, one's natural instinct, I think, is to think, well, that's not a good thing that Gen Zers have such a mistrust of political parties. But do you think that there's any positivity in that? In theory, there is. And in theory, we should be thinking kind of outside the greater scope of, you know, you shouldn't be labeled by one party because your ideas are everywhere. I would say usually what happens in bipartisanship is that kind of everybody gets what they don't want. Um, and usually what happens is we move the country leftward. So for our Generation Z listeners out there, this is not a knock on you. We love you. But part of the quote was someone in Generation Z may have seen a Supreme Court nominee be beaten down by an opposing party or some bills not make it to the floor. 
this stuff happens in politics. You kind of have to get over it. Even if we had this perfect utopia of everybody gets along, there still has to be disagreement because that's how our government's supposed to work. There's supposed to be debate. There is supposed to be bills that don't make it to the floor. I think with Brett Kavanaugh, we probably saw that process go too We definitely saw that process go too far. But if every time that you get a little bit upset in politics, you want to quit and you want to quit your party, I don't think that's really healthy for that generation to think that way. No, I agree. I think parties play a, a really integral system uh, and role within the political system, rather. And we see that you know in, in nations that have uh, many, many political parties, it honestly just creates a lot of confusion. Uh, but you also you can't just have one party there. It's healthy to have the tension and have the debates and have the, the differing sides that are advocating for different viewpoints that creates a natural check on power. All right, we are going to take a quick break. And I want to tell you all about one of our other awesome podcasts here at the Heritage Foundation. It is easy to get overwhelmed by the 24-7 news cycle, and I know that you might be too. So if you are looking for a way to keep up with the news that matters, the Daily Signal podcast brings you the top news of the day. I co-host the Monday edition with my colleague Rob Bluey to bring you interviews with lawmakers, authors, and conservative activists. And of course, we start your week off right with a good news story. So if you are a conservative who wants to be on top of the news, check out the Daily Signal podcast available every weekday morning. Welcome back. Our next topic is about Demi Lovato going to Israel. After receiving backlash for accepting a free trip to Israel, pop singer Demi Lovato is apologizing, posting on Instagram, quote, I accepted a free trip to Israel in exchange for a few posts. No one told me there would be anything wrong with going or that I could possibly be offending anyone. With that being said, I'm sorry if I've hurt or offended anyone. That was not my intention, she wrote. Why she's apologizing? Posting a photo from the Shava National Center in Jerusalem for Children with Special Needs, the Holocaust Remembrance Center in Jerusalem, and a photo that showed her being baptized in the Jordan River, the same place that Jesus was baptized. The horror. Critics say she failed to acknowledge the Israel-Palestine conflict in any posts, and some even accused her of taking a political stance on the conflict. Here's a sample of what she shared on Instagram. Quote, I was raised Christian and have Jewish ancestors. When I was offered an amazing opportunity to visit the places I'd read about in the Bible growing up, I said yes. There is something absolutely magical about Israel. I've never felt such a sense of spirituality or connection to God something I've been missing for a few years now. Virginia, she said the trip was supposed to be a spiritual experience, not a political statement. But is that even possible anymore? Should she have predicted the backlash that ensued? It should be possible to go to a country and have a vacation and go there to connect with, uh, with the Lord and with your family roots and have it not be political. That seems uh, pretty basic in my mind, and it's certainly sad that she received so much backlash for a trip that was obviously so impactful for her and so positive. Uh, And, you know, should she have predicted the backlash? Maybe. Uh, I don't think she should have had to have. Again, I think this is just a sad commentary on how divided we are right now as a country that you know everyone has to have a hot take on even Demi Lovato's vacation um but her her going and and having a spiritual experience I think should have been just that 
Virginia, one of the craziest parts of the story is that people look at celebrities like Demi Lovato as if they have all the answers. And and this Palestinian-Israeli conflict is probably one of the biggest conflicts of our time. So why do you think people think that she's able to fix this through a couple tweets and, and really put this hate on her for that? You know, I think it's misconstruing the kind of power that Demi Lovato has because she does have power. She has incredible influence, but in a cultural sense, not in a political sense. To quote Uncle Ben from Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. And Demi Lovato does have great power, just not necessarily in a political sense, nor should she in a political sense, because she's a performer uh, and that's what she does well and that's what she should keep doing. But we shouldn't be looking to her to set policy or make rec- recommendations for how how Israel and Palestine should settle their differences. Yeah. And she said in her Instagram post that she was apologizing because it felt right. But I think it's kind of sad that it feels right for her to be apologizing for not being able to come up with this answer because she is only one woman. She is not a scholar on this issue. She really just took a trip to see relics from her religion and to to learn a new culture. Absolutely. I think anyone should should have the freedom to know that they can travel to any country and it's it's not a political statement. You know, we need to be traveling in order to further our education, to learn about the world and to see things from different perspectives. The good news is that Demi's mom, who attended the trip with her, is not backing down and apologizing. She posted on Instagram, quote, praying at the Western Wall with my beautiful daughter at Didi Lovato, Demi's handle, in the old city of Jerusalem was the highlight of my trip to Israel. I will never forget that day or that trip as we celebrated life and Christianity as we learned about the Jewish faith while listening to the Muslim call to prayer. There was no fighting, no judgment, no cruel words, only love. And I will unapologetically go again one day. So hopefully Demi can learn something from her mom and just enjoy the trip and enjoy learning about her faith and other people's faiths. Yeah, we can always count on our moms to bring some good truth into the situation. Amen. All right, so let's talk for a second about another situation that unfortunately has created uh, some strife in our country over the past week or so. So last Wednesday, the court saw an act that was described as the most powerful moment they had ever seen in a courtroom. The act was a hug given by Brant Jean to Amber Geyer, the woman who had killed his brother. Amber, a former Dallas police officer, had entered his brother Botham's apartment and, thinking it was her own apartment, had fatally shot Botham. After Geyer had been sentenced to 10 years in prison, 18-year-old Brant took to the stand, and he had this to say. I hope you go to God with all all the guilt all the, things, the bad things you may have done in the past, each and every one of us may have done something that we're not supposed to do. If you truly are sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I, I forgive you. The hug lasted almost a minute, with the tears in Amber's eyes reflected in the eyes of many in that courtroom as they witnessed this profound display of compassion. And after receiving a hug of forgiveness from Brant, Amber Geyer asked the judge, Tammy Kemp, if she could also hug her. Judge Kemp, who is also a black woman, 
left the judge's bench and gave Geyer a hug. When Geyer said that she didn't know how to begin seeking God's forgiveness, the judge gave Geyer a Bible and also prayed with her. However, these hugs, simply hugs, sparked a debate on race and forgiveness. Executive Director of the Thurgood Marshall Civil Rights Center at Howard Law, Justin Hanford, said, We see the black community take the moral high ground because you don't get the right to be angry with white people in America. If you're angry, it is seen as unjustified. Judge Kemp stood by her actions, saying, Following my own convictions, I could not refuse that woman a hug. I would not, and I don't understand the anger. And I guess I could say, if you profess religious beliefs and you are going to follow them, I would hope that they not be situational and limited to one race only. Man, even you just quoting that in the studio, I have goosebumps. It's just so powerful. It is powerful. I love that she stuck to her guns and she did not back down. What an awesome lady. Brant also talked about why he chose to forgive, saying, Usual instances, the words only, they don't, they mean something. And with usual instances, the words only, they don't, they mean something. But I, I felt like that wasn't enough. And that was just my gesture. That my decision of saying, my decision to make that, my decision of letting her know that I truly forgive her, and that was just my way, no one else's way, my decision. Just my way of letting her know that she is truly forgiven. This is what you have to do to set yourself free, you know. I didn't really plan on um, living the rest of my life, you know, hating this woman. I know that there's something called peace of mind and that's, that's the type of stuff you need to do to have peace of mind. That is why I wake up happy in the morning. That is why I want to live happy later on in my life. Wow. Brant is speaking some truth. So, Lauren, when you first heard this story about this powerful act of forgiveness, what were your first thoughts? Wow. Brant is 18 years old, and he is on national television forgiving the woman who killed his brother. I can't think of an example of someone having the heart of Christ. Uh, you know, that's that's his religion and that's my religion. Um, and so it's just re- a really powerful testimony of when you are able to forgive. It's such a confidence that you have in your faith that you're able to forgive someone like this. Um, so, I mean, it just kind of takes you aback that there are people like this who are spiritually mature and willing to just come to peace with other people, um, even when they've done a lot of harm. And then, like I mentioned, the judge's response as well, where she kind of doubled down on what Brant was doing and saying, you know, take my Bible. Like, what is important here is is your salvation. Um, so, yeah, I, I just think it's it's really powerful and something— as a nation, we should be focusing on kind of the good, even if you're not religious, seeing what um, faith can do and what really forgiveness can do for someone. He, You know, he said he's at peace. He, he wakes up in the morning and he's not angry. Um, and I think we're very angry in our society right now. Yeah, it it is such a, a powerful and beautiful display, like kind of a, of humanity at its very best. You know, forgiveness is 
it's not an easy thing to do. It is a choice and it's a difficult choice to make. And it takes a ton of courage uh, to, you know, my goodness, he lost his brother and to stand there and say, I forgive you. That was the most powerful and courageous thing he possibly could have done. But like you said, this has led to some debate and controversy, especially on Twitter. Did you ever think that a moment like this would spark such negativity and lead to further division in our country? Yeah, I can't speak to the racial component of it because I am a white person and I I can't empathize with what it's like growing up being African-American in our society. But I think the whole point of this is it's about faith. It's not about race. It's about living out what you're you're saying that you're going to do. And I think people who try to make this a race issue, they're really missing the point of this person did one of the worst things that you can do to somebody. I can't imagine if someone hurt one of my sisters, I'd I'd be on a plane down to Florida, you know, ready to, to beat them up. But he was able to even put that aside. We can't even put you know, minor disagreements about Demi Lovato going to Israel aside, and we want to attack people. But he was able to do this in such a mature way. And I think that's why it's so disappointing that this 18-year-old kind of went out of his way to do something so kind and set such a good example. And as a country, we, we literally couldn't spend five minutes just saying, wow, this brought us together. We should do this more often. It's, oh, no, this is wrong, and this is racism, and this, you know, I'm so woke. It's just really frustrating and, and disappointing. It is disappointing. And I think a lot of it comes down to people not fully understanding what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not saying what you did is okay or that's totally fine. It's saying, okay, you don't owe me anything anymore. And I kind of release you. And that allows you to have peace in your own heart and kind of move forward in life and allow that other person also to move forward. Um yeah, this this story, I hope I hope we will see more stories like this continue to come out uh, as as people see that it is so powerful to walk in that spirit of forgiveness instead of divisiveness and instead of hate, which is so much easier. Uh, it really is taking the high road to walk in forgiveness. And I hope all of our listeners, no matter what their faith background is, look at Brant and, and kind of use them as an example today and just forgive one person that's, you know, has kind of been on your heart and nagging. All right, we're going to take a break, but when we're back, we'll be sitting down with Natasha Chart of the Women's Liberation Front, a self-proclaimed liberal feminist. And we'll be talking to her about why it's important to stand up for gender identity and what it really means to be a woman. Hey, guys, because of the nature of this interview, we do get into some slightly sexually explicit content. So listener discretion is advised. Welcome back. We are now in the studio with Natasha Chart of the Women's Liberation Front, or also known as WOLF. Welcome, Natasha. Hey, how's it going, Lauren? Thanks for having me on. (laughs) So happy to have you. Natasha, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do at WOLF? Sure. Um, So I'm the board chair of the Women's Liberation Front, also uh, commonly referred to as WOLF. And we are an all-volunteer organization of radical feminists who we incorporated, we we formed up in order to challenge the Obama administration's uh, directive ending single-sex spaces in uh, federally funded educational institutions. 
uh, because we thought someone should challenge that in court and no one else seemed to be stepping up to do it. So we did. And what is the type of work that Wolf is now pursuing? Well, we're still doing the same kind of legal advocacy. So many other suits have been brought over this issue that, you know, our resources are scarce. We don't have any paid staff at all. So we've been mainly filing uh, amicus briefs, friend of the court briefs in other cases to advance our ideas of how the law should be interpreted and work from a radical feminist perspective. Uh, we've, we've been deplatformed in the media. You know, the progressive press tries to pretend that we absolutely don't exist to the extent that they can, although that's becoming harder for them now. And so one of our rationales was, well, you can't deplatform us from the court. Like you're not going to, you know, protest the federal court and be like, you can't allow this brief in. And then they'll say, oh, well, this brief is very problematic and we will we will we will reject it on that ground. They don't do that. So we're like, well, if we can't be heard anywhere else, we can be heard in court like everybody else. There you go. It's a great approach to take. <laughs> so, Natasha, you brought up uh, women's only spaces as one of the motivating factors for your group. Can you explain to our listeners why women's only spaces are important? In our view, one of the most important things to feminism as a practice, kind of a as a process issue, is that women are discouraged from expressing solidarity with each other across all kinds of lines. And as part of our work, like that seems over and over again. And it, it's just reinforced every time, you know, there's like some round of fighting or argument or discussion over some some new factional split to encourage women to try to relate to each other in solidarity, to stand with each other and to say, you know, we may not have everything in common, but we can agree on this and I'm going to support you. Or, you know, even if I don't want to be part of what you're doing, I'm not going to try to tear you down. And that's just the foundation of any successful political movement where you have to bring in a lot of people and you don't, you can't just rely on like the tiny number of people who agree with you because there's never going to be like some huge vast majority that agree with you. As a nation of 330, I think, roughly million people, like you're never going to get like everybody to say, oh, yes, we all agree on this one thing. You can't even get dentists to all agree on sugared gum. <laughs> so as they say, so you, you can't get that. You have to, to work. And women are discouraged from having that kind of solidarity with each other that's common to Every successful political movement, like you have to cultivate that. That's the biggest stumbling block. And encouraging um, women-only space is, it sounds, I don't know, it's not like a high, complicated concept, but it has transformative properties. Natasha, groups like the Women's March typically end up intertwining feminism and transgender issues, but Wolf takes a different stand. Why? Well, because gender identity is about men saying that they're women. And to some extent, now you have more women saying, oh, well, I'm really not like the other girls. I am actually a man for a number of reasons. But that strain of activism would not have had so much success if it wasn't men insisting 
that they have the right to be treated in all aspects of the law and society as women. And this is not only impossible. So like if you're if you're someone who has a commitment to speaking the truth and to, you know, relying on the facts, it's it's intellectually offensive, but it's also offensive to feminist principles, which is about, you know, women expressing solidarity with each other. And, you know, here are these men coming in and saying, we need to be at the center of your movement. We need to be at the center of your concern. We are the the most oppressed, most vulnerable women. And it's like some white guy who is like, he's a married dad and he's an executive at a bank. And, you know, like that is not the most vulnerable, oppressed woman in the world. I'm sorry. That's just not true. And it's not feminist. And we can't support it. But a lot of women on the left, like in the Women's March, they will not be allowed to do the other work that they want to do at all on the left because all of the men on the left have decided to say to these other men, oh, well, if you want to dress like that and if you want to call yourself that, well, I guess you're not a real man after all, which is pretty sexist of them, frankly. Um, So you go off and be with the women. And that's not our problem. But, you know, like (laughs) we didn't we didn't come up with that. Like if men are worried about how effeminate men are treated, men should deal with that. Apparently everybody agrees that like men's bathrooms are some terribly scary, violent place. I mean, (laughs) I don't know what those guys are doing in there. Like seriously, search yourselves out. But that's not women's problem to deal with, you know. Or they'll bring up like, oh, well, you know, these feminine presenting men are treated badly in in men's prison. Like, you know, a lot of men are treated badly in men's prisons. You know, men who are gay, young men, someone who's just not very physically as strong as the other guys. Like maybe the real issue that needs to be addressed there is that men's prisons are terribly unsafe. Like deal with that problem. For, for everybody, that's its own issue. It deserves its own strain of advocacy. It deserves its own, you know, people speaking up strongly who've been affected by it, lumping it in by saying, you know, oh, this is a women's issue. Just put just put this section of men who are affected in the women's prison. That doesn't address the problem. It just puts it off on women. That's not fair. Natasha, you have been very busy this week. You were speaking about the Harris Supreme Court case that was heard on October 8th, which is the case where a employee of a funeral home transitioned from identifying as a man to identifying as a woman. And because they would not wear the men's uh, dress code for the the funeral home, the funeral director fired the employee and now the employee is suing him for discrimination. Can you Tell us kind of what were you doing, what were you speaking about, and why this case is so important to you. Well, part of what I was speaking about yesterday is the intimidation tactics that have been levied against women on the left, the the sexual harassment, the firings. It's like, you know, so many of the people who were with the ACLU demonstration were like, oh, well, you know, LGBT people have the right to work. It's like, I mean, and I agree with this, like that that those folks have the right to to fair employment and non-discrimination, all of us, 
And I'm like, yeah, and I'm over here as a bisexual woman standing in solidarity with my lesbian sisters, many of us who've been fired and sexually harassed and received death threats, et cetera, for just saying, no, men can't be women. That's not a real thing. And what? where's our right to be employed and to have have our opinions. But the thing about the Harris case is it's been it's been presented very dishonestly and in some cases by ACLU staff as being about sex-based dress codes. And that was never a question before the court. Even you know, if you if you read through the documents, it says that. Like that's not under under issue. There's a line in the petitioner's brief uh that ACLU wrote for for Amy Stevens, the plaintiff is talking about how Stevens would have been fine following the women's dress code. That's at the heart of this, that sex-based dress codes weren't the thing. It's, it's their insistence on presenting sex itself as a stereotype of sex, which you can't have a stereotype of something that has no objective definition. A stereotype has to refer at base to a real thing in the world that has some material definition that we can all recognize and wrap our heads around. It's about saying not that you're discriminating against me because I'm a man and I want to wear a dress to work and men should be allowed to wear dresses at work. Totally different question. He's saying, I am a man. I have the right to be treated as a woman under the rules for women. That would reinterpret sex in all of federal law. And I believe that even in the oral arguments that the the justices teased out that, like, if this challenge wins, suits on all of these other issues where there are sex-based distinctions would almost certainly follow and quite rapidly. And then at some point, you can't make any distinction in the law on sex. And the law is forbidden basically to see sex at all. And recognize it. And that simply erases women's rights. Like, you know, we would still have the right to vote, I'm sure. But anything that would be there as like a redress for centuries of discrimination is just wiped out. It's no longer for women. It's not, you know, a women's team if there are men in it. Then it's just, you know, it's a it's a mixed sex team. That's what it is. It's not a women's locker room if there are men in it. Then it's a co-ed locker room. And a lot of women are going to stay back from things like that so they're not, you know, they're not subject to indecent exposure or voyeurism or in the case of sports, so they're not subject to injury. You know, they've they've uh, made the women's amateur rugby teams in the UK mix sex, wow. basically, on the grounds of gender identification. And there was a, you know, a story just out in the the Times UK about this last week that the coaches are quitting because they're worried about women getting their bones broken in rugby matches with these guys. It's a very aggressive, very physical sport, you know, and they're worried about physical injury. And they're just basically being told, well, it's the equalities law. We can't do anything about it. And that it's not fair. So at at Woof and for you personally, how do you define who a woman is? Well, a woman is an adult human female um, as you know, the dictionary definition that Posey Parker over in the UK has made infamous with her her T-shirts and stickers and billboard campaigns. And that definition has just become terribly controversial where, you know, people are saying, oh, well, this is violence and transphobic. And it's like, this is just what women are. 
you you're you know it's it's a it's a biologically determined objective fact that we observe about people it's not assigned you you see someone's sex you don't you know interpret that 99.98% of people it's blatantly obvious whether they are male or female at birth and it it doesn't take you know, any kind of specialty training to, to, to find this out, but that something so basic has been made offensive and unsayable has had this massive cascade of problems like that, you know, you saw from if you got to, to see the rally yesterday, it's like in sports and employment law, um, all kinds of, of non-discrimination law in terms of whether or not you can say when you go to the doctor and you're a woman, I would like a woman to perform my exam or I would like a woman to chaperone my exam if there's only a male doctor available. Even something so basic to your bodily privacy and sense of safety as that is under question. And it's all because there's this one lie that has to be defended at all costs now. And that lie is that people can change sex by an act of will, and no matter how many laws you make saying that that's possible, it's just not possible. So, Natasha, I want to, I guess transition is a bad word to use, <laughs> <laughs> but I want to switch topics. Um, you are, you spoke yesterday at Heritage um, at the Summit on Protecting Children from Sexualization. So what is your biggest concern when these gender identity issues not just affect you know, adults, but they affect our children. Well, you know, the most the most blatant problem with that is the the physical impact on the children who are transitioned. A lot of them are irreversibly and permanently losing all aspects of adult sexual function. Like some of these children and, you know, pardon for the blunt language, but they will never be able to have an orgasm their entire life. They will never experience this because they're sexual organs have been removed by the time they were, you know, of majority age to be able to make these kinds of decisions. Um, you know, we we saw the case of Josh Jenny, like the whole the whole country saw that, you know, and you can say, oh, well, it's it's horrible to talk about a child like this. Like, I didn't put that on television of this poor kid, you know, celebrating the the physical removal of of his healthy once healthy body parts i you know so that's the biggest impact and i don't i honestly don't know why that wasn't the moment where a whole bunch of people watching that show and patting themselves on the back for being inclusive didn't stop and think to themselves hey wait a minute what's going on here what are we what are we celebrating here what if that was my kid you know celebrating a really serious operation like that to themselves a cosmetic procedure and i i feel like it's a it's a huge lack of empathy that you know again like society will see a boy who maybe acts in a way that we consider effeminate and like well it doesn't matter what happens to him i guess i guess he's not He's not a real boy. He's not a real man. Like, whatever happens to his body, we don't care. I don't understand why that didn't stop it. But the other problem is that these kids are being presented as, like, having the adult capacity and agency to be able to make decisions like that. And that is very much in contradiction to, you know, for instance, 
a lot of the advocacy groups that that used to speak to me but now will no longer do so um, would talk about like the school to prison pipeline. And one of the the concepts that's really important to that is that it it dehumanizes children to present them as fully capable of making moral decisions on the same level as adults. And so if you have a child, and this happens very often to black and brown children in the school system, where they, you know, they do some stupid kid thing. Like most people, you know, you remember back in your life, you did some stupid kid thing, and probably a lot of us, and I know for sure, I look back and I think, oh my God, I'm so glad nobody saw that, and I didn't have to face consequences as an adult for that, because that was really dumb, and I didn't understand. And most of us had had the grace from society to be, you know, for the adults around us to be like, kid, you messed up. Let me tell you about it. Let's work on it. Let's not do it again while you're still young enough to figure this out. But these kids are having that protection entirely stripped away from them, and they're being allowed to make very serious decisions that they don't understand, that they haven't experienced because they haven't gone through puberty. Like the, these, there are these girls who are be, being put through menopause before they've had puberty. And that is just – I mean – Menopause is physically awful, as as many, many women can attest, although this is not a thing you talk about a lot, but putting a 14-year-old through it on purpose, she's never gone through having all those feelings and developmental experiences that they're unpleasant. Nobody likes that. Nobody has a good time. Nobody looks back and thinks, oh, puberty, that was the best time of my life. I miss the acne. I miss the aching and the weirdness and the feeling awkward all the time and not knowing, you know, where your arms and legs are because all of a sudden they're like six inches longer than they were last year. And you're like, oh, my God, what am I doing? But nobody liked that. But it's important for your formation as an adult person to go through that and to be protected from the consequences of of just being that unsettled in yourself and going through all of that with your peers. And these children are being denied that and they're being dehumanized by by people treating them like adults too soon. And I my heart aches for these kids. As Lauren mentioned, you uh, you spoke on the summit on protecting children from sexualization and that whole summit can be found on the Heritage Foundation YouTube page. But I want to ask, how how did Woof end up getting connected with the Heritage Foundation? And did you ever see yourself aligning so closely with conservatives? <laughs> uh, wow. Well, so there there's a woman. We're part of the Hands Across the Aisle Coalition, which is just it's an informal discussion network um, of women from there's like every political perspective. There are like liberal pagan goddess worshipers in there and there are conservative Christians of almost every description. And, you know, I would still consider myself politically like my personal ideas. I'm a fairly mainstream to progressive Democrat. You know, we're all represented in there. But there there's a woman whose whose child was convinced that they were the opposite sex and has been 
pushing hard to take steps to transition, and she tried for four years to get someone, anyone, to please talk about this issue and and to raise it in public in a in a venue where policymakers and the media would start to understand that behind all this happy talk about inclusion and affirmation, there are real harms being done to real people. There are physical injuries. There is destruction of family relationships going on that that people's hearts are breaking and they feel like they can't speak out at all. And she tried for so long. And the only people who answered her and were willing to give her a platform to talk about this was was the folks here at Heritage. And she invited us to come. And because we were all getting all of this flack already for being public about opposing gender identity under our own names, she asked if we could help supply speakers because the parents of these children can't come out and talk. They can't say this stuff. Like, you know, for one thing, they have concerns about their children's medical privacy. Um, For another, you know, some of the parents came to, to the summit and were talking with us uh, before that, and you know, one couple was talking about how they felt they couldn't talk to anyone in their church, or how they feel ostracized and like they have to hide things from people, you know, in like local political groups where they had once felt very welcome. You know, like they this issue has made them feel entirely cut off from their communities, and they're afraid of significant public ostracism of being cut off from all their networks. And so they asked us to you know, kind of give voice to this. And the beginning of that panel is uh, my colleague on the board, Jennifer Chavez, reading a number of parent stories, parents who could not come out and and do that themselves. And that was how that happened. I wouldn't have predicted that that would have happened five years ago. I, you know, probably would have said a number of, of terribly unpleasant and uncollegial things about the idea of even walking in the door here, um, you know, but but here we are. So yeah. and we're glad that you're here. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and I do want to plug, we did do a short documentary on Hands Across the Aisle, and I did get to meet okay. a lot of your members, and it was just an incredible experience. So I'll make sure to put that documentary in the show notes if our any of our listeners want to learn more about the group. But Natasha, we we ask pretty much all of our guests this question is if you identify as a feminist, which I imagine you would, why is identifying as a feminist so important to you? It's because of that, like what I was saying at first about solidarity with other women is there are certain there are certain policy positions that I do think are at the heart of feminism in in an outward way. But primarily, it's it's about standing up to say, I am a woman who puts other women first to whatever extent that I can, wherever I can. And, you know, so I do get people asking, like, how can you be a feminist and talk at the Heritage Foundation? It's like, well, I am a feminist. And so if I show up at the Heritage Foundation, I'm going to do whatever I can while I'm there to be putting women first in whatever way makes sense, in whatever way I can advance those interests that are common to all of us. And that's just what I'm going to do wherever I am. You know, the women in Iran are working on, 
you know, how can we be allowed to go out in public without having to to wear religious headgear? Women in Saudi Arabia are working on, like, how do we have the right just to be in public at all on our own recognizance as adult citizens? Women in the U.S., there are women alive today who remember when they could not get a line of credit in their own name, when they wouldn't have been allowed to buy a house, when, you know, most colleges were closed to them, when most professions were closed to them entirely. And you just you work on whatever makes sense at the time with the resources you can. But that goal is always women acting in solidarity with other women. And there are women everywhere. So you can be a feminist everywhere that you are. Natasha, we really appreciate your time and that you joined us on the podcast today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's been a delight. All right. So for our last segment and always our favorite segment, it is time to crown the problematic woman of the week. And this week, the honor goes to none other than the comedian and television star, Ellen DeGeneres. On Sunday, Ellen attended a Dallas Cowboys game. Sitting on her left was her wife, Portia, and on her right was former President George W. Bush and his wife, Laura. She did receive some criticism for sitting next to a Republican president, and this was her response. Here's the thing. I'm friends with George Bush. In fact, I'm friends with a lot of people who don't share the same beliefs that I have. We're all different, and I think that we've forgotten that that's okay, that we're all different. Just because I don't agree with someone on everything doesn't mean that I'm not going to be friends with them. When I say be kind to one another, I don't mean only the people that think the same way that you do. I mean be kind to everyone. Doesn't matter. You know, I think Ellen's response to these comments shows a lot of maturity. Lauren, how can we also do our part to mitigate divisiveness and remember that humanity is also those that we disagree with? I think that's such a big part of conservatism is that understanding that every human being has dignity no matter who they are or, you know, what their faith is. And so just remembering that and and taking the time to really kind of empathize with them. You don't have to agree with them, but find something in common with that person or or try to think through what their reasoning is. And I think that's what Ellen did. You know, she she chatted up with George W. Bush. And I would recommend to our listeners to listen to this whole segment. It was hilarious. She had some slightly politically charged jokes, but none of them were really mean spirited. And, And this is what comedy should be. It should be taking topical issues and kind of breaking through them in a way that that's funny and relevant, but not mean spirited or overtly political, because then it's not comedy. It's just you're out there ranting about your political beliefs. Yeah, I I personally really enjoy Ellen and I, I do watch watch her sometimes. And I was really impressed. You know, I think it would have been super easy for her to apologize like so many other celebrities have done uh, to just simply ignore the situation. But the fact that she said, no, I'm I'm going to address this and I'm going to address the fact that we need to be able to not just be civil, but actually enjoy conversation with someone that thinks and believes differently than us. And it does come down to that priority of of loving and, and respecting everyone. And like she said, being kind to everyone. But Virginia, like you mentioned, not everyone agrees with Ellen and the stance she's taking about our former president. 
Joe Berkowitz wrote for Fast Company, quote, it's not about beliefs. Why Ellen DeGeneres' weak, why Ellen DeGeneres's weak defense of George W. Bush is a denial of reality, with a subtitle that I really like, This Ain't Sesame Street, Ellen. Joe starts the article talking about his childhood friend Brandon, saying, quote, The unspoken rule that allowed me and my friend Brandon to continue being friends well into George W. Bush's second term is that we never talked about politics. We lived in separate states and hung out maybe once a year, and we had enough shared history and bad movies to debate when we did see each other that we were able to keep current events at bay. He continues out throughout the article, kind of bashes Ellen, but I want to bring up what happened with his friendship with Brandon. He said, quote, This may be nearly as trite a message as DeGeneres's, but there are more important things in life than friendship. My friend Brandon, we survived the Obama years without incident by continuing to not talk politics. But our lifelong friendship ended the night of Donald Trump's election. It was the night I realized that the two of us didn't merely have differences in opinions or beliefs. We were fundamentally different people. Some of the terrible things my friend had tacitly endorsed during the Bush years had become explicit in the lead up to 2016. After an election night Facebook snafu, I knew I didn't want to be around to witness the difference in our reactions when those beliefs turned into policy decisions that hurt groups of people whose welfare I care about, which is, of course, what happened. I didn't want to wait for my friend to come around to the other side when history eventually did. Maybe history wouldn't even come around this time. Maybe we were finally doomed and we deserved it. I knew where I stood, though. Wow. It's just, I don't know how the author went from Ellen to saying, I stopped being friends with my childhood best friend on election night, not even talking to him. But because Trump was president, I think another really interesting thing was that Brandon was willing to be his friend throughout all the Obama years. And it wasn't until Trump was elected uh, so, yeah, I know we've kind of been hitting really hard on this be nice to everybody and, and let's empathize this episode. And, Joe, if you think the show is Sesame Street, we'll we'll take the label. But it's just so important to really in this politically charged and divided times that you need to stand up for what you believe in. But you also need to take time to be kind and respect others and listen to others. Um, and not throw away lifelong friendships because they voted for a different candidate that you may have. Yeah, that's just so sad. And gosh, you know, by him calling it Sesame Street, I'm like, I think that just kind of gets at the root that's, that there's a little bit of this thought process of like, well, you know, kindness or, or forgiveness, that it's this child childish thing. It's this childish notion. And that's just simply not true. It takes so much maturity and courage and you're you're being the much bigger person if you can continue to be kind and set aside differences and have difficult conversations. I definitely have a lot of friends that I very much disagree with politically and we have just kind of made the decision like, all right, we're not going to talk politics and that's okay. But they're awesome people and I love them dearly. Uh, and it's 100% worth being friends with them uh, because they're amazing people, even though even though we disagree politically. I, I can't agree anymore. And I'm an Enneagram 8, so I love to, to, to debate. And so what me and my friends do, we'll just set aside times of like, okay, we're, we're going to be talking politics. And then, okay, we're not going to be talking politics. Because then whenever any of this kind of 
debate and, and disagreement builds up, we're able to get it out and then you just move on. You know, there's no reason to keep it in and and really kind of just ignore it. But there's no reason to let political disagreements just ruin friendships. Yeah, no reason at all. I will say, though, Lauren, that is the difference between you and I. So I'm like, oh, let's just not talk about it. <laughs> Virginia's a two, so she loves loves everyone. I want all the peace. I just want everyone to be happy all the time. <laughs> well, I think we should end this week's edition of Problematic Women with that Enneagram reference. Before we let you go, and this is kind of a spur-of-the-moment topic that we're going to discuss, I can't think of a better way to end this today's show talking about the Enneagram. It's something that comes up all the time in the office so it's going to be a question that I'm going to poise to our listeners. Please tweet at us using the hashtag problematic women. A, what your Enneagram is, or if you don't know what it is, just tweet at us and we'll help you figure it out. And if you think it should be a topic that we explore here more on problematic women. We would love to discuss it. We would love to. So <laughs> You can uh, see how excited we're getting. We're just losing our words. We're so excited to talk about the Enneagram. <laughs> uh, yeah. So please let us know on Twitter again. Tweet at us, hashtag problematic women, or just comment on any of our social media posts and we'll for sure see it. But we're going to leave it there. Join us next Thursday morning for a brand new edition of Problematic Women. And in the meantime, please subscribe and share. Conservatives need your support in the podcast world. And we would greatly appreciate a five-star review on Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Overcast, or just wherever you get your podcasts. It makes such a big difference. Have a great week. This podcast is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Kelsey Bowler and Lauren Evans. Special thanks to our editor-in-chief, Katrina Trinko. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.